Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good morning from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Tom and I are here with Don and Jay Mahaffey again. So if you've been keeping up with us a few weeks ago, we released an episode about early season cotton management, early-ish cotton management, early June time frame. And we just ran out of time and, and did not complete that conversation. So we just hit stop and save and started back up on a new episode. So on this one, we're going to tailor it more to managing cotton mid-season, headed on towards late season. So, Jay, man, appreciate you taking extra time out of your morning to record another show with us. Happy to do it. We were laughing before we started that we have what could only be described as the pride of Franklin Parish, Louisiana, sitting right here. Never has been, I bet. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of people that would I say There's some folks. I mean, I – there's collective standpoint, or because you looked like you kind of were teasing towards Don with that statement. No, I was collective. That? Okay, I was collective. <laughs> Use your own judgment. Yeah, I'm sure Hank Jones takes exception to that. But, well, Trey uh, would too. Hank's not here to defend himself. Yeah, Trey. Yeah. I, and I know. Yeah. I, mean, I, I know a lot of folks from Franklin Parish, but those folks are not sitting here. So I'm just pacifying my guests. No, but by calling them the pride of Franklin Parish. Louisiana. One would presume that there will be. Uh, textual conversations as well as probably some phone calls. Yeah, but we, be, we don't have to worry about that for a few weeks. It's not, it's not going to happen today. <laughs> no, but they'll come. I always wondered how you could know so many people from Franklin Parish. I guess we leave. It's If you start thinking about it. It's a lot. In the ag world, there is a whole bunch of people from Franklin and Tinsall Parish That's right. in the ag world. Y'all are resilient is why. Maybe so. <laughs> That's, that may mean. That's some tough dirt down there. If you, you can, know, that's that, you. You are absolutely right. I would agree with that, except if you divide our data up. When I left Franklin Parish to go to North Carolina State, I thought that was the hottest, driest place there was on earth. Until you got to North Carolina. Well, I got to North Carolina, realized the tobacco patch is a pretty rough place at times, but it's productive. But now, if you divide a lot of the data up and look, that Macon Ridge region of Louisiana is the highest yielding crop region in the state. My comment was based solely on the fact of working it some is. summers, some days at Macon Ridge. By no means worked anything like what y'all did. But I went to Macon Ridge a few times back down the line, and it was always hot. And it was always dusty. Yeah. Yep. it's Kind of reminded me of home. Yeah. It's rough. <laughs> I guess my comments were, you know, having worked in various environments, is – that environment and those soils are probably some of the less forgiving than I've really seen are. most anywhere. So we established on the last podcast that y'all grew up together. So, Jay, what do you think is Cook's favorite rock and roll song? Tom just gasped. <laughs> <laughs> well. There's a backstory to that. <laughs> I'm going to have to guess Freebird, maybe. I was... I'd say it's in the top five for sure. I think it was on his list when we asked him back in the winter, Tom, what it, what the greatest rock and roll song was. I think he mentioned – he might have mentioned it after the fact and we didn't capture it in the recording. I'm trying to recall. A lot's happened in the world since then. I was really hoping Jay was going to throw out Iron Maiden or oh, – uh, It's not really mine. She I'll have to, I'll have to fill in the background later. 
Don's fascination with metal. 80s metal. 80s metal. I have a small. Has, no, has no. always <laughs> intrigued no, no, me. No. Anybody from our era, Don, does not have a small fascination with 80s metal. I still have an outstanding fascination with metal. You know where you, you know where that came from, don't you? No. Gore. Okay, yeah. Gore I've, was probably still is a fanatical Metallica fan, and that's where it spilled over from. Oh, he is. He'll send pictures, screen captures from his, you know, truck, like Pantera or yeah. one of the really lesser-known metal bands that not a lot of people really that's focus on. That's where my influence on, on that type of music came from is from Gore. This is a recent revelation. I, I'm, I'm not familiar with this. It, it, well, man, you, you, you it, were in North Carolina and in here when all of this transpired. I see that. When you stop and try to wrap your brain it, I, around Don. I can't reconcile. And I know. When I went to Baton Rouge the second time in entomology, you talk about fish out of water. I'm stuck in a lab. I learned how to rear insects and all that and, you know, that was not my environment, but I adapted. Anyway, we got some strange looks when people walked down the hall because we'd always have something on on the radio. I saw a guy on a plane look, at, look down at my iPod years ago when iPods were a thing, and yeah. he played like that selection of stuff landing in Memphis. George Jones and Merle Haggard and Metallica and who knew what. <laughs> yeah. He said, I wouldn't be a nosy, but that's the craziest selection of stuff I've ever seen. I really don't have anything else to contribute to this particular podcast, given the fact that I have blown Jay Mahaffey's mind. Yeah. I'm going to have to think about that the rest of the day. Huh? Well, we're going to struggle to reel this one back in. <laughs> yeah, well. We, Straight we off are, into the ditch. We are off the rails. No we're, question. Well, off the road, across the ditch. You, you let us off the chain, so, I mean, what do you expect? I know. Bring it, man. Bring it. These are the more endearing moments. What did we tell people we were going to talk about? We were going to talk mm -hmm. about the progression. Mid-late season growth management. That, got. That's right. <laughs> Maybe we have to catch that on a third episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. We can pull this one back in. Jay, you enlightened me, at least, on the previous episode, talking about early growth regulator applications. That whole management, I guess for cotton has got a long and colorful history and i don't know that it's ever been one that has cleared up you know there's so no, many variables and variables that change from year to year and variables that are beyond our control a lot of times that it's just i think you could work from now on on growth regulators and not be able to have a cookie cutter recommendation for how to use them i would agree completely with that it it's even bigger than that. The system has changed as we got rid of the weevil. You know, our pest management became better and safer and, and uh, softer. We were able to set more fruit. That let the breeders chase higher yield and maintain fiber quality and increase turnout, for that matter. But it came with the price of having a variety that is growthier, particularly where it loses fruit. And we talked about in the last episode – and I hope everybody watches and goes back and listens to, to clarify this message. But we talked last year, our last episode, about how you position yourself for better responses later. Well, suppose it's gotten to later and we've had issues. That's the next question. What's the possible intercession and possible problems we can have in the later season? If we did it right, 
that's one that's one possible outcome. Say we we got our fertility right, we chose the right variety on the right dirt, we put out our picks or our mepiquot as we could at the timely, you know, and most appropriate rates. Well, maybe we've accumulated this big fruit load. The fruit has become the sink for the sugar that the plant makes, and we're going to finish the year out with a perfect crop. We all have grades of troubles that happen. It rains, insects get away from us, whether we mean to or not occasionally, and the crop doesn't wind up in the perfect position. What do I do then? Well, in all but the very worst cases, there are things you can do to make that case better. And the first thing is to monitor the fruit accumulation profile of the plants and monitor the growth of that that plant. So if I go out and look and I say, I missed some fruit here, it came off for whatever reason, I've got plenty of growth. My internode, you know, that internode that's four to five from the top of the plant starting to elongate, that's the case where you need to do something. And that's where that sort of environment-specific management, it's always that way, but it's even more specific to each growth control case and growth potential case. Because the penalties for that are things, you know, like this cascading sort of fruit shed effect. Yeah, I mean, you get into that, it's self-perpetuating. That's right. Is it grows, it shades fruit, and they shed from lack of sugars, and it just keeps going. Yeah. Then it's you can't stop it. You're trying to balance the, the amount of sugar that the plant can make with the amount of fruit that can absorb that sugar. And one nose get out of whack, we get that fruit shed that occurs. And then if you get too much of that, like Don says, you've, you get shading, you get shedding, you get growth. We enter, we put some picks on or mepquat on. It settles down a little while. And if you don't stay after it, it, it tries to run off again. Then you get into disease problems and all kind of other things. <clears throat> yeah, it's just what I was thinking. You, you misapply your fertility early, too much fertilizer, miss a mepquat application, and you're losing things in the lower canopy to something like target spot, and then everybody assumes that they need to make a – a rescue fungicide application, which in most cases, if it was something like that, they missed something earlier in the season. How often do you see something like that in, in your research plots? And I realize a lot of that's going to be environmental driven. That's that's the hard part about being a plant pathologist. If it doesn't rain, a lot of those things don't happen. There's no moisture. I would say just in general response in our research plots, every year in the untreated checks, because I the research that I do is unique. I think it's unique in that I have every year deliberately an untreated PIX plot or mepiquat plot. I'll put any on it. Nobody or very few folks do that because nobody grows cotton that way. And I know it's crazy, but it's helped us identify some things about that that are particularly useful. Every year, even in the driest of years, that cotton that has no mepiquat or a passive sort of a mepiquat program usually fruits a little, well, the untreated will fruit much worse at greatly reduced levels in the lower canopy. And it depends on the environment as to whether you need to be passive or aggressive with your program. And that's not such an easy thing to suggest. Well, it's even, philosophical. Even given what the environment's going to do at the time that you make that that decision, but that's that's interesting to note that allowing that plant to grow on its own and do what it wants to do, which is grow tall and shed fruit and everything else, 
it ends up being a, an attractant because you didn't manage the canopy architecture for something like Target Spot and some of the other things that and are lesser rot. known. And, the and few fruit rot. that set do rot. That's right. And insect control. I got this question, and I'm going to date myself a little bit. I know back in the, the 80s and 90s, a lot of the varieties we had then, you had to be a little bit more careful with some of those with some of the PGRs because they weren't super aggressive growth, and you could actually hurt yourself if you got too much out there. I think a lot of these newer varieties, that danger is much, much less. I would agree. It's still there, but it's greatly reduced. And a lot of conversations leave or, or maybe never were exposed to the early experience with Mepiquot. The first experience with Mepiquot many people had was in 1980, you know, 79, 80, 81 in there, which was one of the hottest, driest years. And it was recommended at very high rates. And it didn't rain. And we had very little irrigation. And we had somewhat indeterminate varieties. And it was really quite a wreck in many cases. And slowly over time, we learned how to use it better. And what I was thinking was, you know, a little bit later on, we were, our mindset for varieties had changed. We were looking for shorter season, a tad less aggressive because we were trying to make a crop as quick as we could and get out and reduce the amount of weevil and budworm sprays. Oh, they were a lot less aggressive. You know, and I actually did it in some research plots. I reduced yield with it because of how unaggressive those varieties were compared to what came later. Well, you think about the variety change that occurred as a response to the budworm alone. Oh, yeah. We went from 825 and 213 and Delta Pine 41 to almost overnight we went to 50, 20, and, St- and Sugar 125 and yeah. 453 and stuff like that. My, my master's was done on 50, and it was very, you know, as far as growth was considered weak compared to like 51 and 90 and that kind of stuff well 90 90 was a different standard but the the point of that is of that of the range because that would about be the range 50 51 and 90 at the time that represents you know those kind of products but the change that has occurred is where all this growth control gets time gets complicated it's exciting but it's complicated and I don't mean to just dominate the whole conversation. Oh, go ahead, but I man. got a revelation about that, I think, to share. There's one good thing that came out of the last year and a half or two years of me having to sit in Scott and not have a lot of folks to talk to. <laughs> you know, COVID, we weren't traveling. We weren't getting out and about. And I got to sit around and play with our data. And I realized that I had about 12 or 13 years of this data done in a similar protocol across a very diverse group of varieties. So what I mean by that is I take the, the candidate commercial products and the existing products, I put them in a system where I test an untreated, a passive, passively managed, which is where I delay picks out further than I think is optimal. Many times it's, it's okay, but it's further than I like. And then an aggressive, which is the max label rates, most aggressive timings. And the way I summarize that data is measure yield of course but also measure uh, height reduction because height reduction tells you more about how picks or mepiquot work than yield and i wish everyone had a moment or, or could have seen my face when this all came to light 
because I divided the data into four categories. I had a tall or short, and then I had a responsive or not, less, more or less responsive to PGRs. It was, so I had the, the population divided into you know, four categories. Turns out, if you have a variety that's tall, that is responsive to growth regulators, and I know that sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. Those are things like 2012, you know, some of these new products that are out that are 15, 18 is one of them. They're tall if I don't put any picks on them, but I, they're easy to manage. It costs you about 17 pounds an inch an acre of lint in the, in the growth potential. Above a certain amount. Above a certain amount of growth, which is about 50 inches, 48 inches. But that's not the revelation. The revelation is if I got one that's tall that's not very responsive, which is most of what we grow today, things like 1646, 2038, some of these other things, that same extra inch of height costs you 31 pounds. Whoa. That's a real number, Jay. That's almost and, double. And almost. the R squares are very good. That, it's strong, strong data for that kind of retrospective analysis, you know. So if it's 10 inches out of whack, it's 300 pounds. That's why all this early intercession and the acknowledgement of background and all that matters so much. What do you attribute that to? Once those tall, less responsive products run away from you, penalty for them running away from you, not only are they more likely to run away, the penalty for running away is greater. Which is why I think at the end of the day, plant pathologists have said reducing the likelihood of the development of rank growth will help manage some of those lower canopy issues later in the season. Exactly. And this harkens back to when I was a PhD student because my advisor used to just beat into me constantly that fungicide is not always the answer or the solution to the problem at hand. There's something that you could have done earlier in the season, and especially, obviously, since we're talking about cotton, to manage that or prevent that from occurring later in the season, notwithstanding the fact that it may rain too much or everything else. But... All of that could factor into that situation if it does set in and get wet. Then something that's shorter might not see as much of a reduction in yield associated with something like target spot, hypothetically. I'm all about probability. You know, the highest batting average ever in the baseball was 366. Many of these decisions we're talking about are way over 800. They get you in the Hall of Fame pretty quick. No question. And I'd hope that wasn't more detailed than No, no, that's perfect, Jay. Y'all mentioned environment. And then with this input of growth regulator, when we get into a period of poor weather mid to late season, so thinking specifically about cotton, extended period of cloudy weather, maybe marginal temperatures, is there a way we can manipulate our growth regulator application to try to soften the blow of that I think environment it depends a little bit? On, I think it depends on what's happening. If you're talking about running out of heat at the end, no. Yeah, I think he's talking about, you know, mid-August and yeah. whatever. You got five to six days where it is cloudy. <laughs> I guess I'm thinking about more deal. about shed and rot. Well, yeah, I, physiological traumatic weather situation yeah. that we all like to try to say is – yeah, the plant doesn't like what occurs environmental, and it ends up doing something physiological. Well, it's all in response to that sugar dynamic I was talking about earlier. If you influence the amount of available sugar, think about what a cotton plant does. 
it says, okay, I've got to make a seed to survive, all right? I'm making so much sugar, I'm going to start blooming, I'm going to accumulate fruit. Well, if sugar becomes limited, two things are in that plant's programming. A square, for the most part, is physiologically independent of the plant, not entirely, and I'm not saying that that physiological shed doesn't occur, it does. But a square is greatly less likely to shed than a newly bloomed bowl. One way to look at it is a square represents what's going to happen three weeks from now. That's right. And the weather may be better, so I'm going to hold it, and I'm going to shed this small bowl, which is represents now. Uh, and I'm going to keep the bigger bowl, which represents my investment earlier on. That's exactly right. That seed, that hormonal signal from the seed to say I'm fixing to make oil, lint, and all that other stuff is so strong. If the plant says I don't have any to send you, see you, and it'll wait. It'll kick it off thing I would point out is that shed in August, late July, that we used to have, like when we grew 50, mm-hmm. remember? Yeah. First cloudy afternoon, little shower, the middle's filled up. That happens today, but not nearly on that magnitude. I would say it happens in cases on that magnitude, but it takes a longer period yeah. of, Accumulate. Of, of stress. Yeah, if you want to call, you know, three or four days of cloudy weather stress. Well, and the deeper you go into that stress, the more likely you are to start shedding squares, too. Yeah. But to the point of what can you do at that point, if you see those things coming and you're thinking, all right, I'm probably – most cotton farmers are thinking about putting out growth regulator anyway most of the time. You see those things coming, pop it to it. Lean on the side of more, not less. Yeah. And a lot of times – if we're talking about that period of time, we usually have a pretty good fruit set and pretty good bowl load. So, or at least we hope we do, that it's not going to just take off and just run. Well, we yeah, hope it's inevitable that you're going to have shed. That's what the plant does. And you also have to think about a cotton plant's programming because if it says if it's late in the year and I shed some fruit, it's okay. I'll just do it next year. Yeah. Because it's perennial. That's the part of this we're trying to get around with our management. Because it thinks it'll just be bigger and make more. And, and and Jay's right. There's a period of time when you get past a certain physiological period or, or line, whatever you want to call it. And a lot of it has to lines up with, you know, mid to late August. We're already headed toward cutout. That's when it'll just shed and it's like, okay, well, I'll, I'll do it next year. But what we typically have to manage is the things before that. That's right. Because it's still, I got some time. When the sun comes back out, I'm going to try to grow again and try to make some more. Well, manage correctly. I don't care if it sheds. Well, that's true. It's not what you lose, it's what you keep. So when we have that period of poor environment, we make that growth regulator application. What about that treatment? What signal is it interfering with with the plant? It's... To soften the blow of that poor well, environment. Think about what's happening. If if you have a if the plant has a intermediate, let's talk like this, intermediate level of fruit set. It's not great. It's not bad. Well, there's plenty of sugar there. You got plenty of healthy leaves. You get that clouds where you don't make as much sugar. Maybe the plant decides it's going to shed. All of a sudden, the sun comes back out. What you've got is a plant that's making plenty of sugar now that was not, 
and it doesn't have anywhere to put it. Or doesn't have as many places to put it. As many places to put it. So it starts to grow off. What mepoquat does is it actually shortens cell elongation. Cells are there, and they're normally formed, but they're smaller. So the sugar that would have gone into making a cell longer becomes available for other purposes. And one of those purposes, and there's several systems in there that are changed some, but one of those systems is you set the fruit and put it in the fruit. The other part of that, with that you know, reduced cell elongation, you cut down on that shading that we talked about earlier that will kind of perpetuate itself. Yeah. You kind of stop, well, I don't know about completely stop that. It depends on the situation. You can either slow it down or stop it, and therefore you, you, you retain more fruit. The end result is you retain more fruit. And I didn't mean to digress with all no, that data, uh-uh, but that uh-uh. no, that's, I show that to growers. I show them that thing about the value of or what an inch potentially costs you. And I've had several look at it and say, I got to go home and get my act together. <laughs> that's shocking. Yeah. I show it to growers thinking, yeah, they don't like all those graphs and regressions and all that. And they get it that quick y'all have talked a lot about historical varieties and i don't have near a perspective on any of that my my history of cotton is about 15 years and that's it so i missed all of these historical varieties and all the older things but agronomically we the collective have changed something in the breeding process that has sucked some of these issues back into the plant because any of the disease issues or lower canopy problems, and you almost could put problems in quotes in that situation, are the result of something else. Probably, yeah. I mean, it's not some fundamental susceptibility. N- no, and that if it is a fundamental susceptibility, it's come in there in the breeding lines with something else. It was accidentally sucked through. And more often than not, we all don't spend a lot of time looking at the lower canopy. We really don't. When you're scouting a cotton crop, you're looking for insects or something else, you're looking at where you are from a certain point in the canopy to the top. It's not where I'm at, hands and knees, looking at the lower canopy to see what's going on. And that's where most of the problems, again, in quotes, seem to be occurring, at least in my respect, in the plant pathology world. And then we're trying to fix an issue that's deep in the plant canopy with an application technology that's not effective to manage something that's down there. And really, you almost have to look at that backwards. You're not trying to get the fungicide of the lower canopy. You're trying to protect what's in the upper canopy because that's what's being used to assimilate photosynthates and all the rest of that. Yeah, those older leaves. Because that's what the sunlight's capturing. Dead anyway. That's right. And if something else goes on, and I, I would consider this more so when you look at corn, you lose everything in the lower canopy anyways because it's shaded out. The plants already robbed all the nutrients out of that. How much of that goes on in cotton? Oh, a lot. Uh, the older leaves in cotton, are, that's forget, why they get crutchy. I forget what it is. It's like after like 20 days that they're, yeah. they're not really productive anymore. Well, when you walk through a cotton field and grab a leaf and go – and it crunches, that's potassium deficient. And it's been mined out. I mean, it's redistributing it from those. Yeah, and my limited understanding of physiology, it's a sore sink issue because it's pushed everything towards bulb production, so it's sucked the bulk of the nutrition out of those leaves anyways. And at that point, then they become just a a magnet for something to land on it and grow. 
to your question of how did all this happen, you know, we keep a focus on disease susceptibility and all that kind of stuff. But that's a sort of a fundamental level you have to meet to deal with the risk everybody faces. Most of this stuff, this physiological sort of risk that we're talking about that's managed with growth regulators came about in this quest for, it was actually higher yield, but indirectly higher yield came from indeterminacy, which is a longer season, less determinate cotton. And I told somebody over the winter, we can minimize some of this growth control risk if you'll take three quarters of the yield, because that's what it takes. The other thing, and you're closer to the breeding part than I am because, you know, that's part of y'all's unit here in the company. But I think you could almost look at breeding as two different eras. It is. Pre-ERAD and post-ERAD because you get rid of weevils and and you throw the let management in there as well, but I think weevils is was probably the bigger one. Then that's me. It opens up a lot more possibilities from a breeding standpoint than you had in the past where you had this mentality of let's get it what we can as quick as we can before weevils take it from us. We went from indeterminate to determinate in response to budworms, which helped us with weevils. Yep. Then about the time 555 came along, Pearl guess, what, in guess 555, what was happening? We had no pyrethral resistance in bollworm. Cry1AC was just smoking, budworm still does, and we were either in the middle of or finished ERAD. 555 would never have made it without eradication. No. Couldn't have done it. Never would have. And I was happy I was part of that. And <laughs> I mean, but it's it's the, a different world. The, well, there's another point in there. That was when that early period where we had this, lack of a better term, a vacuum, and plant bugs had not completely filled that space. That's right. We learned how to deal with that slowly. As we took out applications for budworm and weevils, plant bugs started filling that gap to where we are now with them. Jay, we, we thank you again for taking the time and coming to visit with us. That's, it's, it's important, and these are certainly meaningful management topics to discuss, so we really appreciate it. I always appreciate the invitation. I invite you all to come see us. We'll be working on all this stuff all summer. The data that I mentioned while we were talking is all publicly available, and it very little of it even mentions the variety. It's very science-based sort of view of PGR management, and we'll be happy to try to translate that into somebody's specific system if they want it. Jay, where can, speaking of that, where can folks go to find that type of information? <clears throat> well, that's a little bit of a struggle, but it's it's at decalbasgrodeltapine.com. And if you search for the Scott Learning Center, there's a page on there that has this and a bunch of other stuff, or you're welcome to call or email me, and I'll get it directly to you. Yeah, I should say. I mean, any any one-on-one conversations, I know that you're you're pretty willing to do that, too. Oh, and absolutely. We're all re- really easy to track down. If you're still a you know, Googleite, just jump on there and track one of us down, and we're more than happy to discuss these topics with you all. Thank you so much, Jay. Thank you all. Thank you, Jay. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.